0: Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real-world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by Coda, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Christy Zettler. I am part of CODA's research team. I'm here with Laura Fernandez, our Senior Statistical Director here at CODA. And Laura is going to talk to us about her recent presentation at JSM. Laura, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Christy. This is so
0: good. I'm so happy to be here and to talk about this presentation.
1: Absolutely. So maybe we just jump into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the conference? What is JSM, who attends, why it's important, all of that.
0: Perfect. So so JSM is short for, for joint statistical meetings. This is for folks who, are, uh, who know the cancer world. If ASCO is to cancer, then JSM is to statistics, you know. So it's one of the largest conferences that happens in the field of statistics. And you have representation from all applications of statistics, whether statistics in the biopharmaceutical section or for health sciences, for machine learning, computer sciences, even uh, space weather modeling and atmospheric science. So you have representation from all over in this particular conference
1: really covers everything.
0: (laughs) Yes. And the thing is, it's been a hybrid because of the pandemic, as you all know, you know. So because of the pandemic, it has been in a hybrid form for the last two years. And after, so for the first time now in two years, it was in person. They didn't have a hybrid option. And so everybody was excited to be in person. It was kind of a reunion of sorts after many years for all statisticians.
1: Yes, I'm sure that was very exciting to have everybody back in the same room. Well, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, your presentation and how real-world data can support clinical development and and regulatory decision-making. Before we sort of get into your presentation and some of the work that CODA has done in this space, I'd love to talk a little bit about how this work relates to the FDA draft guidance on real-world data, which we talked about on this podcast a little while ago. So can you explain a little bit about sort of how this works fits into, into that guidance? Oh yes, definitely. And so to give some, and also to give some context, you know.
0: So this session, I spoke in a session that was on uh, utilization of alternative data sources in clinical trial research. And we had speakers from the FDA. I was one of the speakers representing Electronic Health Record Data Company. We had also a speaker from the industry, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, Amgen, and there was another speaker from Medidata. And we had a discussant from the FDA, giving an overall uh, view about, you know, all the four sessions. I think I have a slide on this. So as you mentioned, the FDA uh, issued several guidances, you know, last year in the fall of 2021. And there was one specific guidance that was released in September on uh, specifically on electronic health records and how you could use electronic health records for a clinical uh, submission to the FDA. It covered different aspects, but three main aspects that it covered were uh, what is the relevance of the data source, what were the different study elements that the data captures, and how do you assure that you have appropriate quality control checks in your database so because the fda has so much of interest you know in seeing real world data applications being submitted as part of a clinical trial it has been issuing these guidances also to uh, fulfill its 21 uh, Centuries Cures act requirement and so here we have one of the guidances that's most pertainable to the work that we do here at kota
1: that's great and that's helpful to sort of set the context of where this work fits in so maybe we can go ahead and jump into the sort of case study you included in your presentation, which is some of the work that has done. So let's talk about the AML response validation work. Um, maybe you can give a brief overview of the study and sort of why that matters before we get into some of the specifics.
0: Yes. So so one of the components of this guidance document that was released last year in September is concerning validation of outcomes, right? And what do we mean by validation of outcomes in the context of the guidance is that we know that real-world endpoints that are collected in the using electronic health records, let's stick to that because that is what this study uh, discusses. When we have real-world endpoints that are collected in the context of real-world data, how do they translate when you try to use them in the context of a clinical trial? And so this process of showing how, how closely uh, related these two endpoints are is part of what we call a validation study or validation of the endpoint. So kota was involved in uh, doing our own validation of objective response rate in the context of acute myeloid leukemia. And the results of these were actually presented at another major conference, you know, the electronic hematology uh, conference that was held in, I think, in Austria earlier this year. I walked through the, the results of this validation study and I put it into the context of using real-world data and an endpoint that is routinely collected in clinical trials,
1: very cool. And can you talk to us a little bit about sort of the criteria that were used in this study, and sort of how you made that comparison between what was the you know response versus the derived response? Yes, yes.
0: So, so like the way I said, in the real world setting, we have what is known as the physician-assessed response, right? So this is what we would see that has been collected for a patient who receives AML therapy in the real world setting. So. At the same time, we also have data that can be used to derive this response. And so we have data that is collected in the form of lab tests, bone marrow biopsies, and various other tests that are done on a patient. And so these can be used to validate the outcome that is routinely used in clinical trials. It's called the ELN criteria, which stands for European Leukemia Net criteria. And the ELN criteria is what is actually used to evaluate an endpoint in a clinical trial. And so in a nutshell, if we can show that the response as assessed by the physician, you know, in the real world setting, if it is equal to or comparable to that as derived by using this ELN criteria, then we can show that both the responses are comparable and equivalent, and we have in some sense validated this endpoint for this particular disease setting.
1: Very cool. That's really, really interesting, especially comparing to sort of that standard that we use across clinical trials as well. Can you talk us through a little bit about your your patient attrition diagram on the right? Sort of how did we go from 3,000 patients to the just over 400 that we ended with in the sample?
0: Yes. So, so we started off with 3,000 patients in our quota database. So we had we started off with 3,000 AML patients. And like the way I said, we want to apply uh, the gold standard, that is the ELN criteria that is used in clinical trials. And so we applied the same criteria for excluding patients or, or rather including patients in our analysis. So we started with 3,000 patients. We exclude patients who are younger than 18 years because you only have patients who are old than eighteen In a clinical trial, sure. we then excluded patients who, you know, who do not have repeat lab measurements, because as you might understand, you need to know what was the lab value at baseline, and you need a subsequent lab uh, assessment at a future point in time, typically 28 days later, so that you can see if there is a change, you know, in response mm-hmm. for the patient. So, so we applied all these criteria, and we only kept the patients who would fulfill this clinical trial requirement criteria in some sense. And we came up with this patient population of, I believe it was in this particular instance, 879 patients. Mm -hmm. So of this 879 patients who were qualified to be in the study, we then came up with 435 patients who actually could be evaluated as per the ELN criteria. And so for this, we had to have the patients have bone marrow tests, ANC tests, and platelet values. So we required all these three different lab tests to be present to derive the ELN criteria. And so we came up with a patient population of 435 who had this derivable ELN patient population. Of this 435, we see that 350 patients were actually having a response as per this criteria. And a response is anything that is a partial response or greater. So you might have a partial response or a CRI, that is complete uh, response with incomplete recovery, or CR, which is a complete response, you know. So any any of these categories are contained in this response category.
1: Great. And then what did we find? What did we conclude after after working through all of this with that final subset? Yes.
0: So so once again, our big question is is the response, right, as derived by the by applying this ELN criteria, is it equal to or comparable to that as reported by the physician, the treating physician in the real world? And we had very good promising results actually, ever based on our analysis. So in this 350 patients who had a response, the agreement between physician assessed response and the derived response was 65%, 65 65.1%, which means that every time a physician said it was a CR, we had derived CR in our data set. So so the agreement in that regard or concordance was 65%. It might seem that 65% is low, but like the way I said, your, uh, the endpoint in question is objective response rate or ORR. You know, ORR is the primary endpoint that is typically used in clinical trials. And ORR is the sum of patients who had a partial response or greater. So when we look at all the patients who had PR or higher, partial response or higher, we see that the ORR in this patient uh, derivable patient population was 80.5% as compared to 79% as reported by the physician. So this is a very high degree of concordance in, in showing that both the endpoints are similar.
1: That's amazing. Very exciting, I'm sure, to see the the sort of comparability across the physician-derived, or the physician-assessed and derived responses. And then if you can talk us through sort of the, yes, that diagram on the right there, what what exactly is the Sankey diagram telling us about the that comparability?
0: Yes. You know, even at the conference, there were many who came up and told me that this was a very cool picture and they asked me what it was <laughs> called. Yes. yes. So yeah, it's called uh, different things. You know, it's called a Sankey diagram or an alluvial plot, you know, and thanks to R, you know, shout out to people using R. This is made using RGG plot. So so what the Sankey diagram shows over here is the patients who had a discordance in their response. So off the, so it's 34.9%. And what it shows is the The patients who had a CR as calculated using the derived ELN criteria, where do they fall as reported by the physician? And what we see is most of the patients who had a CR were classified as CRI or they were classified as MLFS or a partial response you know, so the majority of them actually are moved to the CRI category. And the reason why we see this is that to derive these responses, like the way I mentioned earlier, you require a different number of lab tests, you know, and so you require Mm -hmm. two different lab tests, you require the complete blood count panel. And we also require the bone marrow cellularity test to be present. And -hmm. what we hypothesize is that probably physicians, when they are calling out the response, they might not have access to both the tests at the same time. And so there might be a little bit of a little bit of misclassification in that regard, in terms of what kind of response it is. But like the way I also mentioned earlier, if you're looking at ORR as a primary endpoint, they all get classified as responders, anyways. Mm -hmm. And we have a high overall concordance of 79% versus 80% in the ORR estimate.
1: Very interesting. And especially sort of to your point about the the discordance perhaps resulting from delays in lab test results, it, it appears to be even sort of more positive than the initial results might have indicated. That's really interesting.
0: It is. This is actually a very big deal for us at Cota also, you know, to show that, to increase our confidence and to show that, you know, a real world endpoint can be validated. So there are two things to it, you know, that it can be validated because we have all this complete information, you know, that mm-hmm. we collect in electronic health records. And it also to show that it is similar, you know, and in this case, it's almost equal, you know, so which is which is very good news for our company as
1: as a whole. Great news, very good news. Well, just to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about bias. Of course, we're conscious in sort of any research using real-world data to consider and account for different types of bias um, where that's possible. But I'm hoping that you can sort of talk through some of the main types of bias that we see in in real-world data and how that may compare to bias that we see in randomized controlled trials and how we think about that sort of similarly or differently.
0: Yes. You know, so so typically we hear about bias when we are trying to use real world data in the context of, say, an external control arm, right? And we know we try to use an external control arm in a clinical trial for various reasons, especially in oncology, where we have very few patients to conduct a large randomized clinical trial. So what mm-hmm. we see are small single arm trials with no comparator arm to figure out what is the actual benefit from receiving this therapy, this this new therapy as compared to the current standard of care. And so in those instances, we try to do what we call an external control arm. And in the process of using this external control arm, we often have this feedback that, oh, there are so many biases that creep mm-hmm. in when we use this external control arm. Some of the common biases that are mentioned are selection bias. And we say that we say that external control arm patients might be uh, selected from a particular demographic or they might be selected from a particular region, or they might be selected from a particular uh, institute. Right? But as a clinical trialist who has actually seen clinical trial data in several different drug approvals, I can say that a similar selection bias occurs in clinical trials. And I have several published articles also where we have spoken about disparities in clinical trials, where we see that there is underrepresentation of certain demographic patient populations in clinical trials. And certain clinical trials are conducted in certain institutes, and you do not have access to the general patient population you also have the same regional biases in clinical trials where a majority of the patient population might be enrolled outside of the US and it might not really you might not really have adequate representation in the US so so such biases of selection and regional biases and operational biases so the operational bias is a third one that is often listed in the sense that in the sense that there might be differences by hospital type Right? But you can, one can argue that a similar operational bias could also. Happen in a clinical trial. One of the biases that is also mentioned for uh, real world data is bias of temporal bias, right? We say that uh, patients that were uh, in your uh, real world setting that were enrolled in, say, 20 years ago, they might not be applicable to the patients who are being studied right now in 2022, which is a valid point, but I feel that is context dependent, right? if the standard of care has not changed, say in the example of brain cancer, glioblastoma, we've not had any new therapies. And so the standard of care has been the same in this particular cancer type. So in that particular instance, temporal bias might not be such a big issue. But mm-hmm. in the case of lung cancer, where we have seen a lot of new therapies in terms of immunotherapies or targeted therapies in the last five sure. or six years, yes, in that particular instance, temporal bias does exist, right? And, mm-hmm. and a clinical trial would help in showing uh, comparability to the current standard of care. But we have ways to circumvent that bias in a real-world setting. We, all that you have to do is uh, use a proper cutoff for the year, right? Mm-hmm. You do not have to go 20 years back. You can just limit your patient population to the last five years or three years, if that. What is what you want to take into consideration. Some of the other biases that are present in clinical trials, which, are, which you might not really see in a real world setting is the observer bias, right? So oftentimes mm-hmm. what would happen is you might have two independent radiologists look at the same tumor scan and uh, report two different outcomes. One radiologist might say it's a, it's a responder and the other one might say it's not a responder, might sure. actually call it a disease progression, right? Uh Uh, so that in the case of randomized clinical trials is taken care of by having a independent central review so to your question right so there are biases that might creep in in a randomized clinical trial if it is not uh, well conducted and if you are not really uh, looking out for these biases so we often say a robust well-controlled well conducted clinical trial, if you do not have that, then yes, uh, that is also prone to biases
1: absolutely it's a It's a good reminder that in any use of data, we do need to be conscious of and cognizant of how we deal with bias and how we account for it absolutely
0: yes um. The other thing about randomized clinical trials, right, in that context, the randomi- we say that randomization takes care of baseline confounders, right? And so even that, you can see that there's a problem over there if you have a small clinical trial, you know, uh, mm-hmm. if you have a very small clinical trial, you often see imbalances in your basic demographic table, which could lead to... Uh, slightly uh, incorrect conclusions if you're so very particular about balancing your confounding factors at baseline.
1: Absolutely. It's a great point. Well, thank you so much for, for talking through this. This was wonderful. I'm sure everyone at JSM enjoyed it as much as we did. So thank you so much for your time, Laura, and we'll talk again soon. Yes, this was amazing. I'm glad we had this
0: talk, you know, and I hope I hope everybody who uh, did not get a chance to attend JSM gets something out of this. Yes. Agreed. Thank I you. think they
1: definitely will. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Christy. Have a nice day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthCare.com.
1: We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.